I told Prasada that, that I think you're one of the few people that I talk to who might be able to talk more than me. <laughs> and that, and that, is, that, is a, uh, that is a talent. You could restore it all and rescue me from Welcome to BackupCentral.com's Restore It All podcast. This is your host, W. Curtis Preston, a.k.a. Mr. Backup, and I'm the chief technologist at Druva. My co-host has 15 years of technical experience in the storage industry, and we're lucky to have him as Druva's director of product architecture. I'm super excited to have him on the podcast, Prasanna Maliandi. Great to be here, Curtis. Happy to have you. Speaking of Druva, we should state the opinions you hear on the broadcast are our own. Let's get started. I am super excited today for our guest. Uh, he is a longtime friend, a brilliant uh, IT individual. I have known him for over 20 years. He actually got his start in acting. Just go watch the movie Taps. He's in there uh, alongside George C. Scott, Tom Cruise, Sean Penn, and Timothy Hutton. But he eventually developed a love for IT. And then he was able to merge these two loves and do IT for the entertainment industry. Now he's working at a media and entertainment company. And I'm super excited to have him. Welcome, Jeff Rockland. Uh, thank you, Curtis. Uh, lovely, lovely intro. I appreciate it. Honestly, as soon as I knew we were going to be doing a podcast, I said, we have to have Jeff. You and I, Jeff, we have had many conversations over the years. Oh, yeah. Always yeah. That, that merging technology and entertainment, right? Because it's it's so important to both of us. Yeah. No, it was kind of, uh, for the longest time, it was kind of my dream, right? When I started out uh, working to be an actor, I got into computers out of a, first of all, a love for science fiction, right? Which all of us geeky kids had. And I came up in that era when personal computers were really first starting out, right? My first real job doing anything was working on a TRS-80. And then I always decided rather than waiting tables to pay my bills as an actor, I would learn how to use computers and write computer programs. And that's what I did for a long time. And then when the acting stuff started to become you know, harder and harder as, as I went from being looking like a 15 year old to actually uh, looking like an adult and the parts weren't coming along as, as much. It became a really, really good way to make a living and, and be able to afford like a house and family and things like that. So we all have to pay the bill. Yes. I we think do. you've actually been in IT maybe longer than I have, or definitely as long. And so I'm just curious, your perspective, you were in the consulting realm for a while, but then you went to what we would call, I guess, traditional end user type companies. So you've lived the trenches. You've, I mean, you were at uh, Disney Feature Animation, right? Yep. You were at DreamWorks. Yep. You've yep. lived this hard life of IT and you've done some backups in your time <laughs> yeah more than a i'm few. assuming you've done a few restores can you can you think of maybe a, a particularly challenging restore that you the one that comes to mind is uh, i was at disney feature animation and we were working on the movie atlantis at the time and we had a storage failure that went really really bad i mean really bad we lost probably 200 terabytes of storage and we had to go back to tape for it and it took three, four days, five days to restore it, which of course meant that the production lost probably about 10 days 
worth of work because, you know, they lost all the work that they would have done while we were getting the storage system back online. And then when we got it back online, it was five days old. And there was a lot of, I spent a lot of time in what I refer to as the how come room for that one. Like, how come this happened? How come it takes so long? How come this? <laughs> but at the end of the day, what saved us, I think, was keep the people who you're servicing informed and make sure they understand exactly what happened and, you know, be transparent and be upfront and Ultimately, you know, when it's when it's something that just happens, it's something that just happens, and and we all learn to to deal with it. But those are, that was probably the worst I can think of because that one wound up costing real money to the business as well as being very high profile and very high stress. I'm just astonished. 200 terabytes on tape, and you got it all back up and running in like three days. Pretty impressive. Yeah. <laughs> if you think about an animated movie in the modern world where you're dealing with computer-generated image. It's really like working in a supercomputing lab. You have large clusters of machines that are used for rendering the images, and then you have massive amounts of data that you have to figure out how to spread around effectively so that you don't hotspot any of your disks. Because, you know, my, my analogy I like to use is Shrek was a great movie, and Shrek was the star of that movie. He was in every single scene in that movie, and Shrek is a bunch of five that are sitting on a disk somewhere <laughs> that 20,000 processors are going to want to run against all simultaneously. So how do you balance your storage out in the right way so that you can make sure that your disks don't explode out of the side of the cabinet when you're trying to do it? So that's the challenge of the operations side of making the movies. And then, of course, you have to protect your data because... This is a movie that could cost, I don't know, throwing a number out, $130 million to make. You don't lose that data. That's yep. real serious assets that you've got to protect. And you need to be able to get them back online. Now, in, in the case of Disney and a little less so in the case of DreamWorks because of their business model of doing uh, sequels right away, the animation process is very much like uh, an assembly line, right? Uh, it moves, the creative work moves from department to department to department, and then eventually comes out at the far end as a film. And in order to control the flow of the work, because artists don't like to give up what they're doing, it could always be better. <laughs> you have to literally take the data offline from them at some point and then move it on to the next group to work with. And we did that a lot in the old days using things like, well, we're going to put it out to tape or we're going to put it out to CD even so that we had a snapshot, a permanent snapshot and then bring it back online when we need it later because one of these movies is made over the course of three to five years, right? So you may be working on a scene today in the uh, layout department and it doesn't come back into something like ink and paint where they color it for like three months because they're busy finishing up a previous scene. And rather than waste online space or keep buying more disk, you would take it offline, put it somewhere where it was safe and then bring it back when you needed it. They don't still call it ink and paint, do they? Yeah, they do. It's still called ink and paint, though there is no actual physical ink and paint anymore. It's all done with, uh, well, nowadays, in a full computer-generated process, probably not, because now all of that kind of stuff is done with shading, shaders that you create to go on top of the models. So it's different. I've had a few visits to you over the, over the years, and what I remember was when you were uh, archiving Dinosaur out to CDs. Mm -hmm. When you take a company like Disney, right, Disney understands how to uh, take its assets and reuse them over time, right? And the living proof is, you know, Cinderella, which was made 70 years ago or whatever it was, or uh, Snow White, excuse me, which is like probably 90 years ago now, can be released at any time as a new copy. When we moved into the digital age and we were starting to use uh, files rather than um, you know, physical assets, 
literally what we had to do is come up with ways to archive data so that we could bring it back online in the future, right? So originally, when there are lots of interesting Disney stories that you can find somewhere else that are that will tell in better detail, the uh, the compute the computer animation system that Disney first started using in the late '80s to do the first movie it was used on fully was The Rescuers Down Under, was called Caps, which I think stood for Computer Animation Production System. Right, really boring, but what's interesting about it is it was created by Pixar. Pixar started out as a graphics company making graphics cards and. To test their graphics cards, they would come up with short films to test different features. Now, the graphics cards would eventually become software called RenderMan, and they would continue to do that. And then as that stuff got more creative, they went to Disney and said, hey, we'd like to try making a movie. Will you guys finance it? And they did. And, you know, here we are. It's history, right? But the uh, the CAPS uh, system would generate all of these files, and then the data would be backed up onto, originally it was 8-millimeter tape, because that was the era of, you know, that was the densest thing at the time. This is pre-LTO. Mm. Exabyte 80. 505. Yep, yep, yep. Good times, good times. (laughs) But the problem with with that, of course, is tape is not really a great long-term archive medium, right? I mean, it's great for the interim, but you have to spend a lot of time maintaining it. You have to retention it from time to time. You have to check for bad blocks and bad bits and all that kind of stuff and recreate it often. Otherwise, just it's going to fall apart. When we wanted to create an archive of a movie, when we were finished, let's say, right, we burned it off to optical because optical had a you know a theoretical tested life of 120 years but we didn't just buy cd-roms to burn on right we went out and had custom gold substrate cdrs made the reason why we did that is because the silver ones which is the standard stuff that's used in regular disc manufacturing a little bit of oxygen gets into the disc in the production process and so over the long term they will tarnish and go black right or at least go tarnish enough so that you won't be able to read them at some point in history. And by making the, our discs with gold instead, we eliminated that problem and they truly became a medium that at least in the lab was tested to 120 years. As soon as Blu-ray became more commercially available and we could actually get blanks made with the same kind of archival surfaces on them, because we would have them custom made by, I think it was Mitsui did it for us. We upgraded to Blu-ray because, I mean, it reduced the number of of discs that we had to burn. I'm just trying to think, for a typical movie, how many CDs is it it that you guys would do? So a a typical 2D movie, I believe, was 5,000 discs per copy, and we made two copies. Right. Oh my god. My memory was you had this like library that held like a hundred CDs or yeah. something. And then you would yeah. fill it up, you would then you'd copy Swap it and then it. you'd have to then you'd have to empty it and put in new CDs. So we had five or six burners lined up that ran twenty four by seven. I had a we had a department that was staffed with like five or six people and all they did all day was pull the discs off of the burners, stick the labels on them, box them, and make sure they were properly uh, inventoried and sent off to archive. There were so many discs being generated just on a regular daily basis that we needed that many people to run it. Because in addition to the new movie that was in production, we were also pulling back the old 8mm archives, right, so that we could preserve them as well. And to give you some idea of how well this, this actually worked, for the 10th anniversary of the release of Beauty and the Beast, Disney decided to go back 
and create a new negative for the movie with an additional song in it because they had already at that point done the Broadway show and there was a song in the Broadway show that everybody loved. So they decided to uh, add it into the film for the 10th anniversary release. And we were able to pull all of the original data files back online. The CAP system, because it was in-house, was always backwards compatible. It was able to pull all of the files back into the system. We were able to have the original voice cast come back, the original animators come back. They created this extra scene cut it into the movie and we burned off a brand new negative for the 10th anniversary and then of course re-archived all of it and we were able to do that with what was essentially 10 year old files and that was a big deal that's pretty impressive the latest thing i remember talking to you about was you were in production with tangled and i, yeah, I just remember you saying something along the lines of like uh, if if this thing doesn't kill us, it, it'll actually be pretty good. You know, I think the, the challenge with Tangled was it had a whole bunch of false starts before it finally got made. There, there were uh, the traditional side of Disney animation at the time was was challenged a little bit, and that was also right around the window when Disney put aside that the hand drawn artwork and went to all computer generated artwork. The last movie I worked on at Disney was Chicken Little, and that was the first all digital movie that we produced there where it was completely computer generated uh, in the animation department. So, you know, it's really it's really funny. This was one of the, the creative arguments that used to go around back when I was there. The company at one point had made the decision that digital animation was the future. It was the only thing that people wanted and they were gonna make only digital movies. And then it, this was around the time when we were working on Lilo and Stitch, right? And then Lilo and Stitch comes out and everybody loves the movie. The movie does well. And so management's all confused. Well, I don't know. I thought we're, you know, we're trying to get rid of the traditional pipeline and go with an all digital pipeline so that we could save money and we could do all this stuff. And we're all sitting there looking at each other and going, it's about the story, guys. It doesn't matter what you do, what medium you do it in. If the story is good, people will come and see it. I mean, I just saw Toy Story 4. Yo, you finally saw it? Loved it. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it yet, no. It, it, you know what? I, I am consistently amazed at Pixar and their ability to tell a story, right? Yeah. And, and here you have three sequels to a movie, and every single one I think is as good as the original uh, movie, if not better. They have a very talented, creative people up there, and I think it benefits them for, for being away from Hollywood when they're doing their work. You know, it's interesting, but my favorite backup and restore story from the entertainment industry is the almost lost Toy Story 2. You know, we don't have time for the full story, but if you want to see the full story, it's on YouTube. If you just put in like mm -hmm. Toy Story, you know, Lost 8 or something, you'll find the, the story. And basically someone did an R minus R star on all the data and then the backup system was broken. And they, and it was a much longer story how that they had really risked the entire company with the timeline and everything. And they had this huge gamble and then yep. this happened. And then, so they're in the how come room and this woman raises her hand and said, you remember when you replicated the data to my house for maternity leave? Do you think, <laughs> do you think that's still there? And that's how they saved oh Toy Story 2, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's my favorite sort of entertainment. You do what you have to do, right? I, I can tell you that there's at least one point in my career where our offsite backups were sitting in the trunk of somebody's car. <laughs> that was how we got, right? I mean, he, he grabbed the box on the way out. He stuck it in the back of his car. He left it there, brought it back in once a week, and we swapped them out, right? I think there's an impression 
on a lot of people that an industry like the media and entertainment industry, well, they're just going to have a bazillion dollars. And so they're going to do everything right all the time. And they're going to have a budget for everything all the time. What do you, what do you say to that? So to be fair, when you're working for the big studios and you're there at a time when things are going really well, there are good resources to be able to do things. And in some cases, better than, than other places. Not a backup-related story, but when I, um, back in 2005, I did a talk at the supercomputing conference up in uh, Seattle. I was following, I should say, the guys from Louisiana State University who were talking about their supercomputing cluster that was being used to do weather predictions, right? And this was relatively close to when Katrina had happened. And we went out to dinner afterwards and we're talking about how, you know, he struggles to get used equipment from people so that he can build his machines up so that he can do these weather models that are going to save lives. And the best funded supercomputing clusters in the world are in animation studios. But it's about the fact that, you know, if you if you spend the money on animation, the return on the film is going to make a difference. We, we did have access to a lot of resources to be able to do the things we needed to do. But it, if for anybody out there who's in IT, you, you know this battle, right? Do I spend the money on infrastructure? Do I spend the money on software? Do I spend the money on developers? Or do I spend the money on, you know, tape drives? When it comes down to that fight at the end of the day, the infrastructure always loses. It's just the way it is, right? I mean, it's kind of, if you think about, you know, the, the idea of the cloud nowadays, right? Companies would rather spend their money on, on engineering resources to develop their apps than actually build and maintain their own data center. So they throw it into the hands of somebody else. Now, let me ask you this question. When I look at, there's a 3D animation and then there's the super high res, like 8K, video that's being produced with like the likes of red and you know when you look at the way peter jackson films with I, the last time i i got a count he had 36 reds right and that's yeah. what he was yeah. filming with and the amount of data that a red can generate in a day yeah and i and i i look at that and and then and then you do that over the span of a of a movie shoot mm -hmm. and the amount of data that a studio is dealing with is especially the raw data uh, petabytes. and and that data has to be protected i, yeah. I i'm yeah. really curious how studios are protecting that volume of data today that's a really good question i can't speak for a lot of what's going on in the world of live action for all digital shoots because to be honest with you it's still just it's just still coming up as far as pure digital negatives. What tends to happen is they go out with cameras, they shoot their material, and the original copy gets stored away over at some kind of company like maybe a deluxe entertainment services or a Technicolor, you know, the guys who traditionally would make film prints. And then they get vaulted and they get kept as, you know, the original negative. And then copies are made and the copies are what's worked on. When you say the original negative, you, do you mean the original negative of the shoot? Yeah. Yeah. So if you think about it, um, I may go out with an 8K camera and shoot my stuff on the ground or my back plates in 8K. Um, but when I bring it into um, into actually edit it, I down res it dramatically. Because, you know, I'm not going to try to edit in 8K. That's 
crazy, I also have no place to distribute it out to. So most movies are done still in 2K, and then when you want to see it in 4K, it's been up-res. 95% of the infrastructure out there, I'm going to say, is still is still 2K. Because it, it takes a while to do this, right? I mean, it's great that hardware manufacturers are rolling out new and better and prettier standards every two years. But, you know, you can't throw away millions of dollars worth of investment. And, and then immediately go back and, and replace it. It's like, look how long it took to get the, the exhibitor side of the movie business, you know, the movie theaters, up to digital projection, right? It took a decade to get most of the theaters to at least put away some of their film uh, projectors and replace them with digital projectors, right? And almost before that process was finished, and those were all 2K projectors, right? Before that process was finished, all of a sudden we're pushing 4K. These guys are not going to, you know, at a quarter million dollars a projector, they're not going to go throw away their investment, especially when those guys make their money off of the sale of popcorn and candy. You're seeing more... You're starting to see newer technology roll out on a different scale, like Dolby, the Dolby theaters at AMC, or or some of the other more interesting things that are going on. But the technologies they're focusing on are more on things like a color, like, you know, how do, how do we do a better, a more effective HDR, which is adjusting the brightness based on a pixel basis rather than zones of the screen, or higher frame rates so that you can do things like 3D projection, right? Or, or more than that. And less about 4K, 8K, that kind of thing, partly because, and, and again, I don't, I don't have any evidence for this, but anecdotally, I don't think if you put somebody in front of 8K, they would be able to see the difference between 4K, 8K, or in some cases, even my 2K. wife could barely tell the difference between SD and HD. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just, you know, uh, there's just so much that your eye can, can detect. I think I think people react more to things like faster frame rate because faster frame rates reduce the amount of blur in the picture, and it goes from like that sense of you're watching a film to that sense of you're watching a videotape. You remember when they did The Hobbit in the high frame rate, and people complained yeah. that it was too realistic? Yeah, that's the elimination of motion blur that causes that, and it feels weird, right? Because when you look at the world, you don't see motion blur out of your eyes, but because of the nature of the way film works. You're, ca- you're, you're, you're capturing 32 snapshots in a second, right? And, and so things are moving and it's going to blur a little bit. And so we've come to feel a certain way when we watch movies that feels good because we're used to it, not so much because it's the way it is. And video is different. And, and so you've always seen a difference between video and film. And as you increase the frame rate on, on films, you're able to get closer to what video looks like and get sharper images. But the audience has to be willing to accept it. And they will. It's just going to take time. So we were talking about these studios. So you're saying that the original negatives of the actual shoots, they're down-resed and stored at a company whose job it is to do that. Traditionally with film, what would happen is the movie would get shot out in the field or at the studio, and the negatives would be sent off to a company like Technicolor, let's say, where they would develop it, right? And they would send back what's called an answer print to the um, the editors to review, you know, the the, da- the dailies to review them in the, in the studio and then edit from them. They would create like maybe three copies of the film, the original negative. Then the guys would edit against those. And then once they finished the editing on it, they would go back with a person who's very, very precise, very, very expert wearing their white gloves and take the physical negative out of the vault and cut it and put the the physical cuts together in in the final edit form and then that would be the copy that would be used to make all of 
the prints going forward. And then that would be stored in the vault forever so that if they ever needed to go back to it, they could get it. Now, over time, a lot of that is being scanned and being digitized so that it's available forever. There's There's been efforts being made by uh, groups like the American Film Institute to go back and protect some of the oldest films that were made, especially the ones that were made on film stock, I think, prior to the 60s, a lot of the film stock that was used was made of acetate, and it has a tendency of exploding into flames randomly. What I thought I heard you say was that today the original footage is going to a company like Deluxe. Uh, I believe it is, yeah, because Deluxe is doing a lot of the duplication of it, and I believe they're doing that with digital as well. So really then the studio is working on a copy of the original data, right? copy. A down copy of the original data. And then at some point there's a render. Yep. I'm assuming there's some low-res renders along the way for production yeah. review and things like that. Yep. But all of this is just data upon data upon data. I'm wondering if there is a, like whether or not the studios protect all of the edits along the way, maybe because of the way nonlinear editing type things work, really all you have to protect, as long as you have that original somewhere, the thing you have to protect is not the original, it's the, the final cut yeah. database. So in, in my experience um, with production, we would take a copy of the original negative and we would store that. That would go off to the salt mines, right? And it would stay there. And as a matter of fact, you'll find this interesting. Uh, a really good way to back up a copy of the final negative of a digital movie is to make a film out of it. Because if you put it out onto film stock, Film stock lasts a really, really long time. It's easy to protect in an environmentally controlled environment. And if you have to, you can scan it back in again later, right? So you'll find in a lot of cases, the final copy of the movie, the digital print of the movie, will also be made into a, a film. And then the film will be sent off to be stored. So if Curtis wants to keep something for long term. Yeah, it's that's sort of like, you know, that one's going to go into the salt mine and nobody's really going to pick it up and play with it again. But it's one of those mediums that it's, it doesn't have to be retentioned. It doesn't have to be checked on a regular basis. Safety film stock just lasts forever as long as you keep it in an environmentally controlled environment. It's not subject to electronic issues or anything like that. Outside of that, do you think the industry is when they start talking about long term? And by long term, we're talking 50 plus yeah, years. Yeah, the, 100, the 125 year archive is what we used to talk about. A lot of times you throw it away. You don't bother with it because the truth of the matter is if you're using third-party applications to work on your film, right, in five years, you're not going to be able to read your data files back anyway. It sounds counterintuitive, but, you know, you're talking about Toy Story earlier. Every time Pixar does a Toy Story movie, they recreate the character models from scratch. They have all of the original designs finished, right? They know what they're trying to do. The people who worked on it before are working on it again, but they start with a fresh set of files because the truth is you know an application like RenderMan, for example has gone through in in 10 years right it's gone through probably eight or nine generations and you can only keep backwards compatibility so far this was one of the challenges i was trying to solve at disney animation just before i left was what do we do to archive chicken little it's our first all digital movie 
we used third-party applications to make it. We didn't use anything that was custom in-house, like CAPS was, where we could build some backwards compatibility into it. And how do we snapshot a moment in history and stick it in a vault so that we could bring it back in 10 years and work with it again? And the answer, at least when I was still there, was I don't know that we can. Right, because if you're using a tool like Maya, for example, right, all of the files that you've created in Maya in 2019 will probably not work in Maya 2027. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I, I guess what I what I was asking about, what I was talking about, backing up along the way, is just trying to prevent something like what happened with Toy Story 2. But that's just regular business backups, man, that uh, fulls followed by incrementals, followed by, you know, at DreamWorks, we use Tivoli, basically, or whatever it became named at in the end, uh, because it did that one major level zero at the very beginning, and then it only did incrementals for the rest of its life. And it would take a lifetime to restore if you needed to, but it was just one ongoing backup forever and ever and ever. That's how you do it. It's like anything else. If you've got a large data set and you care about it, you just you start your backup process and you back it up and you do tapes and you do all of that other crap. Nowadays, it's disk to disk because you can get a lower tier of disk for your backups. It's cheaper and it's faster. You go disk to disk and then maybe out to the cloud if you can find a cheap enough uh, place to store it, maybe out to tapes, you know, depending on how long you want to keep it. When we were talking at DreamWorks about the what we what we were calling the 125-year archive, the idea behind that was we're going, like Disney, we're going to want to go back in 15 years and bring our movie back online and be able to do things with it. And so how do you protect that? And the biggest thing we were actually concerned about was the change in backup mediums, right? Because... LTO changes every two years, if, if not more often than that. So you have to have a, a system in place that will automatically update the tapes because eventually they won't be able to read the old tapes anymore or you needed, um, you know, some other place where you can get it at. Now in DreamWorks, because every movie at DreamWorks is a sequel, is a sequel, right? They do an original and then there's always a series of movies that comes after it. Uh, a lot of the original source data stays online. So the disk pool just grows and grows and grows and grows. But the stuff that what we were trying to back up was our archive was going to be like a three-pronged stool. There's the near line, and the near line could be sitting on some kind of a cloud source or some kind of a medium, you know, but something that you could get at quickly if you needed to get the files, right? And then there was a long-term storage that was stuff that we were willing to take offline but was accessible relatively quickly. And that was going to be some kind of a cloud storage source. And then the third copy was optical that was sitting off in uh, the salt mines somewhere so that in the event that everything else fell apart, we had a master to go back to. Knowing full well that every time you backed up a file, you backed it up three times. And when you were backing up billions of files, it took a lifetime to do it. The rest of the world, uh, you know, doesn't have necessarily the same problem. That's true. But they have them in perhaps smaller scale. Is there anything, you know, any lessons that you can think of that you've picked up along the last, you know, however many years it's been that you can pass on to people that aren't dealing with that level of data? Uh, know what you need, right? Understand what your data is. Make sure you've mapped it and identified it. Know what you need to keep and know what you can throw away. Because you're right, the, the majority of the data that's floating around out there is not something you need to keep around. It's just intermediate files or it's junk. And you're going to wind up having to recreate it anyway, because the systems you're working on are at some point not going to be able to deal with it anymore. So if you can identify what really matters to you and what doesn't up front, you'll make your life infinitely easier. That's the main thing. And then, as I said earlier from my experience with Disney is, 
be prepared to be upfront with people when there are problems, right? Oh, and pay attention to your damn backups, right? Don't just start running them and then assume they're okay. Run them every, run, run your logs every single day, check them, test them, make sure they're good because it may look like it's okay, but it's not. And you don't want to find out it wasn't, you know, six months later when you go to restore something. When I was at DreamWorks, I had to take ownership of Sarbanes-Oxley while I was there. And one of the requirements in our SOX compliance was daily verification of backups and correction of any issues if something should come up. And the very first thing I did was I, I wrote a bunch of scripts that went out into the log directory from the nightly backups, opened the files, looked for the word failed, and if it found it, generated a, a JIRA ticket, which was our ticketing system, and assigned it to me so that when I came in in the morning, I would have an urgent ticket saying, hey, your backups failed, or hey, your backups succeeded, right? And that provided uh, a lot of value because not only did it clue me in that there was a problem, but it also acted as evidence for the audits that came later. So take them, take it seriously, pay attention to it, because otherwise, if you're not lucky, you got to be lucky, man. <laughs> and if your backups aren't working, you better be lucky. One question I had, you were talking about how on tapes you had to worry about bit rot, you couldn't quite trust them. Um, so you would periodically either redo your backups, especially when you were talking about the archival use case, which is why you like to go to Filmstock instead for yeah. these long-term archives. Do you have guidance for other people? Because there are a lot of people out there who trust tape as their only source for long-term retention, and they're keeping their data for 50 years, 100 years. But some of the problems you talked about, for instance, I don't have the right version of my software to be able to restore, or even the hardware to be able to access my data. Do you have any guidance? Yeah, you have to build into your budget and build into your process the need to, on at least an annual basis, uh, make sure that you review and update your tapes, right? I mean, there's there's no way around it. Uh, again, slightly longer story, but um, but but it pays off in the end. While I was at DreamWorks, Steven Spielberg made a movie called Schindler's List many years ago, and out of that, he created a project called the Showa Project, where he started going around the world and interviewing Holocaust survivors on video so that he could capture their testimony. And the captured video would then be indexed and translated and all of these things so that there would be a permanent library of these experiences for the future uh, generations. And when it became too big for DreamWorks to handle the, the management of the data, he donated it to USC. And so USC has a Shoah library and that it's made up of, uh, last time I spoke to the guys over there, it was like 250, 300,000 hours of testimonies. Now, nah, that's probably too big. Now, 200, you know, it was an enormous number of hours of testimony, all of which had been keyword indexed and translated where necessary and was searchable on a, on a database, right? And all of this, this, this video is sitting as digital files out in enormous libraries. And they literally had two of the largest, all that one process and, and one set of tape drives did all day was pull tapes in, run through them to see if they showed any sign of bit rot, and if they did, duplicated the tape and threw out the original one. And that ran 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, because they're protecting these assets for future generations. They are a library. And they literally, it ran constantly where they were just scanning their tapes all the time, looking for anything that had a problem. And even the smallest problem, it would pick up and throw it away. I guess my advice to people out there who are trying to figure out how to make some kind of reasonable long-term archive is, 
You have to be prepared to pull your tapes back at least once a year. If nothing else, retention them so that you don't get bleed through on the on the um, magnetic uh, surfaces and be prepared to duplicate and copy out, right? And if you wrote your tape in LTO5, when LTO7 comes along, you should read it in LTO5 and copy it back out into LTO7 so that you're at the latest version. That will guarantee that you've made a, a duplicate of your tape within a reasonable amount of time and um, will make sure that you, you've done the, the due diligence you need to do because otherwise you never know what you're going to get. You know, if you, if you take a tape and you leave it in a vault for six, seven years, maybe it'll be good, maybe it won't. I told Prasada that, that I think you, you, you're the, one of the few people that I talk to who might be able to talk more than me. <laughs> and that, and that, is, that, is a, uh, that is a talent. All right, Jeff, I think that's enough Hollywood stories for now. Uh, we'll probably have you on again. I, 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 I love these stories, and I, I think other people enjoy the stories too. So I want to thank you for being a guest on the podcast. And, um, you know, that's it. Thanks, Curtis. Thanks, Prasanna. This has been fun. Thanks, Jeff. Learned a lot. Fascinating, as always. All right, so make sure you click uh, to subscribe on the podcast uh, to make sure that you can restore it all. There was a file, but I deleted it. Too bad your backup system isn't worth a spit. Finally, I needed your backup. You had a chance to fix it, instead it's all jacked up. See how I'll write on Facebook about you. Don't underestimate the things that I will do. There was a file, but I deleted it. Too bad your backup system isn't worth the space. Emails from you remind me of when they keep me thinking that we could restore it all. Emails from you, they leave me breathless. I can't Once it'll be completely done Maybe 